They say you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. Has anyone found that? It's a hard thing. Nor the horse back in the barn or the genie back in the bottle. Vision is like that. When it's unleashed, there's no putting it back in the box. It's out there. It's public. It's open to criticism. It's open to failure. It's open to success. It's unleashed. It's been said, vision is a picture of a preferred future that produces passion. We're studying the book of Nehemiah and our teaching series is entitled, Behold, I am doing a new thing. That line actually comes from Isaiah, but it's what we find in Nehemiah. God is doing a new thing. The people of Israel have paid their dues in exile in Babylon. They've been brought back to Jerusalem, yet the city remains in a shambles. The walls are broken down and God is about to do a new thing. He's given the vision of this new thing to a civil engineer named Nehemiah. It's time for Nehemiah to unleash the vision that God has given him. I imagine it is true to say that some of us are on the cusp of a new thing that God has for us. Or some of us are in God's new thing right now. And the reason I'm confident in saying that is because God is the unchanging God of change. Amen? He's the unchanging God of change. He's always ready to do a new thing in our lives, in our families, in our church. A fresh revelation from His Word, a new appreciation of His grace, a revitalization of something tired. He's raising up a new generation to lead in his church he's reimagining a local church and sending them on a reinvigorated mission god is doing a new thing he's doing a new thing in our lives and it will take grace and courage to walk in it some of us have a god-given vision that needs to be unleashed i wonder if that's you today something fresh that god is doing Nehemiah asked the question of the king, chapter 2. He put it all on the line. Fourth highest paid job in the royal Persian entourage, a life of privilege laid out before him, and yet he was moved by the things that move the heart of God. And he wept and he prayed and he fasted and he waited for God's timing and he asked that question of Artaxerxes, the Persian king. He asked the question and put his skin in the game let me go back and rebuild the wall of jerusalem and the king said yes and nehemiah said give me timber and the king said yes and nehemiah said give me letters for safe passage and the king said yes and the king said Take an army and some cavalry with you as well. And that leads us up to this passage that Yuki read for us, chapter 2, verse 11. Let me read a bit of it again. Unleashing God's new thing. I think this is what it's all about. Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night... I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. 
Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. When we're ready to unleash God's new thing, it's about to go public. Don't forget to savour the secret. Don't forget to savour the secret. Nehemiah has spent his whole life in exile. He's a child of the exile. He has spent the majority, if not all, of his adult life in Persia. Now he's the cupbearer to the king, yet he is an Israelite. To his core, he is a man born in the lineage of Abraham, and he'd been swept up in a God-given vision. This preferred picture of a future for Jerusalem, he'd been trusted with a secret from God, God's new thing. So can you imagine his excitement? He's travelled 600, or in fact, 1,600 kilometres from Susa to Jerusalem. He's visited the Royal Timber Park. He's picked up a whole stack of resources, collected the wood, brought it along with him, with the army and the cavalry provided by the king. And then finally, there it was, the holy city, Jerusalem. Anyone experience what that's like? couple of us maybe about 2010 i mentioned this to you before but i can relate to nehemiah being so excited because he'd never seen the city right he'd never seen this city that he had the vision for in 2010 i was in this private guided tour just me and another pastor we started in egypt and we went around the sinai peninsula and up through israel across the jordan up the king's highway right up through jordan to mount nebo Moses' final resting place and then winding down to the River Jordan and across and then down to the Dead Sea and we're soaking it all up. We're in the Holy Land and then back up through Masada and then En Gedi and then up Jericho is on your right and then you wind all your way up and our guide was playing Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, building the tension and then we wound all our way up and we came to the Mount of Olives And she said, it's over there. And we looked and, of course, we saw this. And for someone who loves the Bible and loves Jesus and loves the kingdom and loves the whole story of what God is doing on this earth, I was overwhelmed with a a sense of wonder. That's what Nehemiah is experiencing. The holy city and his holy discontent. The holy city... And the calling that's on his life, it's coming together. He has this date with destiny. Imagine the scene it would have made, a Persian official arriving in Jerusalem with all these building materials and then nothing. Nothing. What is he doing? Army and cavalry and timber. No announcements, no introduction, three days of quiet. Then in the night, the shadows of Nehemiah and a few others can be seen scouting out the city in and out of gates and laneways. He's doing a mental inventory. He's savouring the secret. Our first core value of 12 at church at Northern Life is known and loved. Known and loved because it's God's greatest desire for us. He wants us to know that We are known 
and loved by the Father. It's the language of intimacy. What I found interesting as I reflected on what was going on here in this passage is that vision is often associated with bravado, isn't it? Vision is often associated with some sense of confidence and persuasive oratory, but it normally starts embryonically with an intimate moment. A couple of young boys, Wilbur and Orville Wright, sit quietly watching birds fly in the park. And they have a little intimate moment. They fall in love with the thought of flight long before the first successful flying machine. Vision starts with an intimate moment. Martin Luther King looks down at his fourth child, just been born, and he wonders in this quiet moment, I wonder if a day will come, looking at his fourth child, when you will live in a nation where you'll not be judged by the colour of your skin but by the content of your character long before he climbed the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and said those words in a very public speech. Savour the secret. I think the archetype of savouring the secret is Mary, isn't it? Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's carrying the saviour of the world and the angels come at the birth of Jesus and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. And most of us at that moment would have taken a selfie and posted it on, on Facebook. But it says, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. We know that so often God's new thing is going to involve others. Vision does involve other people. And we have to share it, but I think this portion of Scripture tells us don't do it too quickly. Don't do it too quickly. Savour the secret. Savour the intimacy with the Father, just like Mary. What's God placed in your heart? What vision are you carrying that is percolating it's it's there you know it's a burden god's given you not everyone else has it savor the secret the intimacy of god sharing it with you and listen for the for the timing from god about when you're meant to step into it and that's what happens here when the time is right nehemiah identifies the problem or in other words he identifies the elephant have you ever seen a picture like this this next one? Oh, it might This is verse 17, if you just leave that up there. Karen, there's, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. The walls have been down for how long? Over 100 years. In fact, more like 170 years. Um, it's 100 years since the the temple was rebuilt. There's an elephant in the room in Jerusalem. And now the idea they're saying, it's a genuinely funny thought, isn't it? There's an elephant living in the living room. The idea is that you could get so used to dysfunction, so used to the abnormal that it seems normal. There's an elephant living in the lounge room. Elephants don't belong in living rooms. And even if you took the analogy a bit further, of course, there's a pile of manure in there. Like there's a, there's a sense overload, but no one cares. 
when you don't identify that the, the emperor has no clothes, when you don't identify the elephant. It's not good, normal or acceptable for the city of God to have broken walls for a hundred years, even though the temple has been rebuilt. And in Nehemiah's very strong, forceful words, he says, it's a disgrace. It's an embarrassment. It is an absolute disgrace. A vision of a preferred future identifies what is not acceptable. Is that fair to say? A vision of a preferred future doesn't just look to the future, but it actually identifies this is not acceptable. Nehemiah rips off the band-aid. He shines light on what everyone else is keeping hidden. Jerusalem's lying in ruins. It's embarrassing. We are the people of God. He's turned up, taking a lot of courage to do this. They don't know him here in Jerusalem. But he's basically believing and he's saying we're the people of God, the people God chose to be his agents of reconciliation in the world. We are meant to shine God's light. And this is unacceptable. Have you discovered in life that the good can so, in, so often be the enemy of the best? The good can be the enemy of the best. Near enough... Is near enough good enough? <laughs> Depends on your personality type, I guess. Near enough isn't good enough when it comes to God and his call on our lives. Have you discovered in life that without fresh eyes, it's easy get to get used to elephants living in the lounge? Anybody? Without fresh eyes. In your most significant relationships... Maybe there isn't a lot of love being shown. But you're now used to it. There's not a, a lot of fully present connection. But you're just used to it. There's not a lot of fun in your life. And you're just used to it. There aren't many words of encouragement being shared. Maybe there's not a lot of genuine spirituality. And we get to this place where we're just used to it. In contrast, maybe there's a lot of sin in your life. A lot of the world, a lot of me, selfishness. Our family, the Shankses, have been uh, at Northern Life now for just over three years. It was last week, that was our first day um, of joining this church family. And so it's been... A great privilege and honour for me to serve here as a pastor these last three years. When we first came, um, I had coffee with someone from another local church and we were chatting about these first weeks of coming to a new church and we'd been at the other place for a long time and they said, you know what, you'll never get as fresh eyes as you have now. Because that's what it's like, isn't it? You come to a new place and suddenly you can go, hey, look at the elephant. <laughs> it's nice, but it's weird that it's there. And... So I tried to soak up as much as I could and, and what I noticed most came through my nostrils when we first came to church. I don't know if you remember, you're good with dates, but it was a really wet time. It was really wet when we started back three years ago. On my first day at church, I walked upstairs and that's what first struck me. This dank, horrid smell in the old building because there were leaks and I remember saying, it smells, doesn't it? And I'd be, well, no, what do you mean? <laughs> Don't smell anything. 
course we're used to that. And I walked out. I was wandering around by myself and I went out into the hall. And um, though it's a marvellous bit of ingenuity that Max came up with, having a pew in the roof to hold the roof up was weird. You guys don't even remember it. <laughs> was there a pew in the roof? Yeah, it was a pew. And, and then I looked at a sign on the wall and it said, don't have too many people in this two-storey hall because it may fall over. And if, if they're basically, if they're all in, don't put them all in one spot. <laughs> and then Ron Skane said to me, whatever you do, mate, don't go out that two-storey fire exit stairwell. That is unsafe. <laughs> the fire exit is not to be used. Right. And then I went downstairs into the youth kitchen and I found a science experiment in the microwave of bacteria that was just something to behold. And we went to our first church service and everyone told us, oh, our church is freezing in winter. Everyone wears duffel coats and it's boiling hot in summer. And I thought to myself, take this as a person part of the community, but this is what I thought. I thought... It's only been 113 years, guys. You would think you'd work out how to keep warm and keep cold, right? But not here. And if I said any of those things, those of us who love Hornsby Baps and that's your blood, you'd say, oh, you don't understand why. There's very good reasons why we froze in winter and boiled in summer. You just don't understand. It's an elephant, it's just there we get used to stuff. But I also found a group of people who had warm hearts and courageous intent. And that church is on an enormous journey of faith towards God's new thing. I would just put it to you that I think it is hard to own up to the problem. It's hard to see the way things are without clarity, without vulnerability, without an honest reflection that reveals the as-is before you can move towards what could be and should be and will be God's new thing. So let me ask you, what do you need to own up to in your own life? What, what do you need to own up to to help move towards God's new thing? That's what Nehemiah did. He ripped the band-aid off and it was the platform for casting vision. And that's this final part, I think, of this scripture. Cast and carry the vision. Nehemiah said in verse 17... Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. It's an obvious statement, but you would think in 150 years someone else might have said those words. Come on, let's rebuild that wall. You can do it. You can cast a vision. It doesn't seem that complex. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And then he went on to say, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Without the help of the residents in Jerusalem, how well do you reckon he'd go at building that wall? It'd be hard. He's got to actually build a team. They're going to have to do it together. The gracious hand of God is on Nehemiah. But vision is a team sport. Amen. Vision's a team sport in the church. 
They have to do it together and the timing is right. It didn't seem to be right for Ezra 13 years before, but the timing's right now for the world, God's new thing. And so he says, let's start rebuilding. And they began this good work. What does Ephesians say about good works? God has prepared them in advance for us to do. What does Titus 2 say about good works? It says, Jesus redeemed his church from all wickedness to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what? What is good? Good works is part of what the local church does. God's vision for his church is to do good. Rebuilding Jerusalem, it's good work. And you know, rebuilding Hornsby Baptist Church building, it's a good work. Hallelujah. It's a a good work. And part of the rebuild for us was changing our name. Think about this. John 1, 42, Jesus said to Simon, who had a perfectly good name, Simon, nothing wrong with it. He says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. But he was casting a vision for this young man, Simon. He's casting a vision by changing his name. He's saying, you are going to be a rock. Your revelation of me as Messiah is going to be rock-like. And then in Matthew 16, Peter starts to move into the vision of his name. And Jesus says those great words. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter's going to be a rock-solid follower of Jesus. It's a vision that was actually put on him in his name change. So do we have to change our name as a church from Hornsby Baptist to Northern Life Baptist? Probably not. We didn't have to. But so I believe the Lord led us to. And, and I think it's part of us walking into God's new thing for our church has been that name change. Because part of an honest reflection on our church is after a long period of time, if you look at the stats, we had become stagnant in growth. We had. There was a decline there was a, 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 um, a, even a, a, a decline in vitality and a sense of belief and a sense of new, new calling and what God has for us. For me, I think, and we agreed on this, Northern Life says something about our future. Northern Life says we believe God is leading us to have a regional influence in the north of Sydney. It's part of the vision that you guys came up with before we came that we want to influence beyond a small inward church. And we're going to be about life in Christ, northern life. We're going to be a hub for life. We're going to become more and more an agent of reconciling grace through the gospel shared in word and deed. We're going to proclaim week after week that there's freedom and life to be found in Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Someone says amen at the end. That is what we are believing for. And we're trusting that the Lord will actually provide a a great ministry space to launch gospel ministry from. And so for me, I'm the senior pastor here at Northern Life. And normally in that role, you, you play a role in vision casting. But 
we are all both vision casters and vision carriers. It's our job to cast vision for what God is doing and also to carry it. Our vision, I guess you would say, is to love God passionately and to love others authentically and to make disciples intentionally. Known and loved by God, believing that Jesus is worth it and much, much more, that God speaks and we will endeavor to listen and that His grace is enough to give it away because we love Him. And we want to live as a church believing that life matters anywhere we find it. We're called the steward and look after life. We're a canvas of color, diverse and unified and reflecting God's big intergenerational story. And we find out and help out because we care and we believe that loving others can be supernaturally empowered and transformational because prayer has power. And we make disciples grounded in the gospel as life learners. We coach one another towards Christ-likeness. And we know we're sent as we send others on the mission that Jesus began and Jesus will finish in reaching the world. A healthy church in Hornsby. That's how we define it. To do all this, the Spirit of God will share intimate, special vision with people here. Do you believe that? So we've sort of articulated with words what a healthy church looks like. But I firmly believe the way that he will get us to do that is he's going to give vision out here to people. Are you listening for that? Have you got a burden? Have you got something that's just there and you're savoring that secret? It's something that can be done in this church and out to the community and to the world. It's something exciting that we get to do together. It's what the Spirit does. He shares vision and we carry it together. From the people serving in the music team, Vision casters and vision carriers to the morning tea, to the kids team, to the seniors group, to the parking attendant, to serving food to the homeless, to mentoring kids in schools, vision casters and vision carriers, to leading in the youth group. We carry this vision and as we carry it, we say we do not believe in mediocrity. We want to do great things in Jesus' name as a church and as we more and more say, we love Jesus and we love our church, we cast vision. Have you been in a church like that? Where you want to have a sticker that you put on the car bumper, I love my church. Because that's when you know something's happening in your church. Because we are the vision casters and the vision carriers as word of mouth. We say, you should come along. The local CEO is not the vision caster or carrier at McDonald's. Who is? It's the person serving you a Big Mac. And I'm not the CEO here. I'm a pastor. I'm one of you guys. But for us to carry a vision of being a really healthy church who loves Jesus and wants to share that love with the world, it's us. It's us. We carry the vision. But I think the really big difference for us as a future for the church at Northern Life is Nehemiah has a vision to build walls. Our vision is to be a church without walls. Amen? We're trying to pull walls down. We're trying to be a church without walls. We have to work hard to pull the walls down. 
that we could be everything God's called us to be. Um, I'm noticing more than ever in my life as the days whiz by and the weeks whiz on by. And I'm, you know, at that stage of life, over the hump. The other, the downhill side of midlife. Every time I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh, this is happening. That life is slipping away. And I don't want to waste this one solitary life. And I know you don't want to either. We have a chance as a church to just have a bite-sized chunk, to look at the next decade and Lord willing together to say let's give this a really good crack let us do a good job of being the church no elephants allowed no elephants allowed and we need grace and humility to let God speak to us and say you know what how can we be the best church that you've called us to be in whatever days and weeks and years we have left we are building on a fantastic foundation as a church Let's do it. Let's cast vision and carry vision for something wonderful that God is going to do for his glory. Verse 19, it says these um, antagonists turn up again when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab hear about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And once again, just here we're reminded that there's always pushback. If you, there's predictable resistance. If you step out and you're courageous and obedient and you do what God's called you to do, there's going to be a pushback. We're in a spiritual battle. Verse 20, I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or, or historic right to it. Vision is a preferred picture of a future that God has. Northern life is already unleashed. We are already committed. If you haven't worked out, we are committed financially. We're in a school. The local spot where we have a church is knocked down. We're building something. We're financially committed to something that's challenging, but it's God's vision and we're in it together. It's something huge. It's something that is a huge um, practical challenge, but an even bigger spiritual one. But God is the one who's going to bring the increase and the favor because it's what his church is designed to be, a, a group of people who step out in faith, believing that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine to his glory. Savor the secret, identify the elephant, cast and carry the vision.